0: Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Louise Palanker, And I'm Fritz Coleman. We are here to lead you down pathways rich with movies, books, TV shows, and the quality content that has you happily tapping Play Next. Plus, we bring you fascinating guests whose stories will enrich and enlighten you and send you madly scrambling for their fine works. Today, we've got Washington insider Ira Shapiro, the author of a series of books about the Senate, his latest being The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Republicans Abandoned America. Ira will join us very shortly, but first, Fritz,
1: what happened? Well, you? I think this is timely. I, I, I want to talk about maybe the first great baby boomer obsession of the 20th century, which was following the Watergate hearings. I was working midnight to six at a radio station at the time back in Philadelphia, and I would get off work at sunrise. I would go to Dunkin' Donuts. I would buy coffee and a bag of regular glaze, and I would head to a men's clothing store where I worked in high school. You are a strange boy. And and, uh, Well, this all makes sense. The store was owned (laughs) by an Italian immigrant tailor who was equally obsessed with the Watergate hearings, but his fascination for the hearings was the disappointment of a new American citizen in the dark politics of his new country. It was a really interesting perspective. He would open his store an hour early, and we would sit in front of the 19-inch black-and-white Philco television and watch these proceedings into the afternoon when I would finally nod off. Now, it's 50 years later, and CNN has done a four-part series called Watergate, Blueprint of a Scandal. Over the years, Americans have parsed and picked and absorbed every morsel of Watergate. Lauren, I know you have, Wheezy. But the historic coincidence of the 50th anniversary of against our current congressional hearings makes it worth a look. It's a great primer for what we're watching unfold right now. One of the main themes is past is prologue. We see a similar political divide back then that we have now. We see similar patterns in the cover-up. We see that, like now, not everybody is on board or interested. Only 50% of Americans knew anything or cared anything about Watergate, and most still supported Nixon. Sound familiar? My biggest question gets pondered, how could smart people Get sucked into the circle of conspiracy. One line in the series really highlights my whole feeling about all these guys that were in Nixon's talent pool and currently being outed in Trump's talent pool. How could accomplished people, political players, cabinet secretaries, people who had carved out admirable careers in public service, how could they enter into all these illegal dealings? John Dean's answer was perfect. He said the power of the presidency causes Blind loyalty. Man, that's an understatement. The last episode of The Four aired Sunday night. You can stream it on the CNN app. It's worth a watch.
0: I recommend you watch this doc back to back with Gaslit on Star. Absolutely. Based on the way John Dean is depicted in Gaslit, he's doing some cleanup on Isle Legacy. (laughs) His His name and his life's work have been embossed with the word Watergate. He has made that work through his contrition and his candor. But John Dean's is a cautionary tale for any young person getting in over their head and wondering, is this how things are supposed to work? When you are asked to do something that feels wrong, talk to a trusted, principled person who has logged at least 15 years of adulting. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and I, f- I know he felt like he couldn't do that because it was all top secret stuff. But.
1: but I thought he was brilliant in one way. What he did was a preemptive strike because he knew Haldeman and Ehrlichman were going to throw him under the bus and he beat him to it. And he was the guy that turned over the biggest rock and ultimately led to Nixon's resignation. Tremendous
0: level of courage. Yeah. And I and I think his wife really helped him get there. Yeah. So, Maureen Dean. Awesome. So, I watched um, the 13-part Staircase documentary on Netflix and the eight-episode Staircase docudrama on HBO. That makes 21 flights of Staircase, and I am gonna stop (laughs) climbing and or falling and live to talk about it, yes. So much of what we think we know is dictated by spin and messaging. As with a news event such as Watergate or Trump's Big Lie, any film or book or newscast can tell you the story it would like you to learn and to believe. Once you have come to understand a story one way, how invested are you in that version of events? Are you willing to have your mind swayed by a wider lens, more nuance, shadings, and important factors? If you first watch the Staircase Netflix doc, you will see the story that those filmmakers decided to tell you. They embed themselves with the Peterson family who are facing the death of a mother and a father's accusation of murder. The filmmakers here are a fourth wall. They are not seen or heard, and they appear to be simply providing you with a window into events. In the HBO scripted version of the story starring Colin Firth and Tony Collette, the viewer is given a wider view, which includes the filmmakers as important story elements. The filmmakers are influenced by the relationships they build, and they in turn impact the Peterson family. You can watch this fascinating dynamic play out also in the 1975 documentary Grey Gardens and the subsequent scripted telling starring Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange as an eccentric mother and daughter living in a decaying Newport, Rhode Island mansion. In the dramatic version, the documentarians become cast members and inform the story. A similar scenario plays out in An American Family. The original unscripted program, which aired on PBS in 1973, In the docudrama telling of their story on HBO called Cinema Verite, we see how significantly the filmmakers influence the Loud family. It's impossible for documentary filmmakers to simply be a fourth wall. They are people, and people affect people. And I found this in making my film Family Band: the Cow Story. Even the presence of cameras alone will influence the comportment of the subjects. And asking them to tell their stories impacts what they come to understand about themselves and one another. We are all constantly affecting one another. And we should each forever remember that we are important players in thousands of stories.
1: Great analysis of the combination, too. I haven't seen the HBO Max, the fictionalized version. Many people think that's better than the staircase. But what was interesting about the staircase, and I think why you brought up what you did, was the staircase was from the defense's point of view. So everything all the family scenarios, the uh, the defense planning session. Well, th- that was the astonishing thing to me, that they got access to everything, the courtroom, the judge, the jury, all the stuff where you're not used to seeing cameras. I thought that was fascinating, but it was slanted toward the defense point of view, and I hear that the HBO Max version, which I still have to watch, was a little more uh, interesting and uh, a-, a better overview.
0: Well, there are dynamics that take place uh, in the relationships that are built between filmmakers and Petersons that, that I'm not going to spoil for you, but watch it and your mind will be blown. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. All right. A man who has devoted himself to sharing the stories that unfold inside the rooms where our government happens is Irish Shapiro. Irish Shapiro spent the first half of his 45-year Washington career as a Senate staffer and Clinton administration trade ambassador before writing a series of books about the Senate, which Brookings scholar William A. Galston calls an epic trilogy. Mr. Shapiro's current book is The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America. Robert Reich said Irish Shapiro holds Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate accountable for their deliberate and catastrophic failure to stop Donald Trump even when American lives and our democracy were at stake. A gripping narrative and a must read. Ira, could you begin by telling us about your earlier books and your passion for the Senate when it works for the people?
2: Thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's wonderful to be able to have a conversation like this because we get into details and we get to talk and It's not like being on television for 60 seconds.
0: Right.
2: Uh, And also, I appreciate your bringing me to your audience, the audience that you've built over a long period of time. Um, I got hooked on the Senate early. I actually was I came of age at the time of the last crisis. Vietnam, which morphed into over time, Watergate. Mm -hmm. And so I was in college and law school at that time. And at that time, the Senate was sort of a beacon for a lot of us who were opposed to the war and also distrusted the presidency, what Johnson's had become and what Nixon's was likely to be. And the Senate attracted us. I was lucky enough to get an internship there and I got hooked on it and I came, I changed my life career, went to law school because the lawyers were dominant at that time. And so I came back, worked in the Senate for 12 years and found it to be as rewarding as I thought it would be. Then went on to other things, the Clinton administration and other things. Looped back years later, troubled by the decline of the Senate, I looped back to write the first book which was the last great Senate. Spoiler alert, it was the only great Senate. (laughs) The late, the 60s and the 70s Senate. And I wrote that book to show what it was like when the Senate actually worked.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Then I wrote a second one as things continued to get somewhat worse. And finally, didn't expect to write this one, but reacted to the catastrophic events of 2020 and the Senate's complete abdication.
1: You know, I loved your book, uh, it, it, uh, and I, it, it was an echo chamber for me because I had some pre-existing conditions about Mitch McConnell, and you just sort of substantiated those with facts. But after I read your book, it occurred to me that because of his obstruction as a leader and his Machiavellian politics, he might be as responsible for our current situation as Donald Trump is.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, look, I the way I phrased it is that I believe that Donald Trump's presidency was a catastrophe for the country and it continues to have repercussions. The catastrophic failure of government was the Senate. The founders believed that they anticipated that we might have a corrupt or rogue president, but they thought we had a strong enough system to withstand it. And the Senate, the strongest upper house in the world that they had designed, was an important part of that. And then what happened? 234 years later, when this authoritarian shows up, the Senate, degraded by its long decline, is completely unable to deal with the problem. So I I think the Senate bears a lot of responsibility and I think particularly Ms. McConnell does because he was responsible for damaging the Senate before Trump came down the escalator to run for president. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, do you think that maybe in the age of all this connectivity, it's it's enhanced, but it feels like they all get their talking points every morning via email and because you hear them kind of reciting them throughout the day. Is, is are they are they instructed to be that disciplined are there weekly meetings you know what keeps them this uh following that party line
2: well i think they <clears throat> i think they are very disciplined i think that our politics are obviously more polarized than they were the parties are genuinely further apart i don't dispute that but than than they were in the sort of last great Senate. But my view of it is that they're supposed to be United States senators. They can care about their party, but they're not supposed to be partisan hacks. Mm -hmm. They care about their states, but they're really not state legislators. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to have a national responsibility. I've been in politics and around it long enough that I don't expect miracles or perfection. But I do think that they're obligated to step up for the national interest, particularly in times of crisis. Somebody in one of my interviews said, well, you're saying the betrayal, that's a pretty serious charge. I say, yeah, but it wasn't chosen lightly. That's exactly what they did. They had the responsibility and they failed knowingly and they failed during a catastrophic period for us, our, our country. Mm-hmm. We're talking about an unhinged president not dealing with the pandemic, but signaling that he was not going to accept the results of the election. If you ever needed a Senate, that was the time you needed it.
1: You, you have said in your book that the last great bipartisan Senate leaders were guys like Mike Mansfield and Everett Dirksen, then it was all downhill from there. What was the scene like at that time?
2: Well not not quite all that far downhill, quite that much, because I believe that after Mansfield and Dirksen and they stop estab- and you Scott, they established a way that the Senate should work. Bipartisan, trust, respect mutual respect, it carried over Robert Byrd and Howard Baker were great leaders in that regard. And Bob Dole came on and he was, and George Mitchell, we can point to others. They kept some momentum through the eighties. What it was like was, it was like being in a sort of a healthy ecosystem. I mean, people weren't, I worked with a lot of, I worked with a lot of Republicans. When if you were a Democrat and you had an idea and you went to a Democratic senator who you worked for, he would say, that's such a good idea. Find a Republican. And it wasn't hard to find a Republican. That's what we were there doing. Some of my not to be cliche, but some of my best friends go back to that period, including the Republicans. Mm -hmm. It was just a healthy system, but partly. And here's the key. Senators, Robert Byrd, the longest serving of all of them, once said, somebody said to him, Senator, you served under 11 presidents. And Byrd bristled, I served with 11 presidents. Mm -hmm. He was an independent, senators are not supposed to serve under the president.
1: I, I think that that's a great point, and this is a great time to sort of do the overview. What was Madison's idea for the Senate, it's the highest body? It was advice and consent. What does that mean exactly?
2: Well, it's sort of the political side, which was the ultimate compromise: two senators from each state. The small states had to be treated equally, so that they would support the Constitution. Putting that aside. The notion of the Senate was we're going to have people who are people of stature, uh, the best, and it was then men, of course, only, the best men in the states, people of stature. We're going to give them six-year terms. We're going to give them more uh, responsibility, ability to uh, have to approve treaties, nominations, etc. that will give them. They'll be the strongest upper house in the world. And as a result, we think they will work with presidents when possible, check them when necessary. Contrary to the passions that might overrun the people's house, the senators will be a moderating force. Now, look, through history, doesn't always work quite that way. For long periods of time, they weren't just a moderating force. They were a block on the nation's progress. That's why when I wrote about the last great Senate, and I only partly joked it was the only great Senate, it didn't always work that way. But at its best, the Senate plays a crucial role. And Walter Mondale, once former senator and vice president, once referred to it as the nation's mediator. That's where we're gonna work out the hard problems. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do it there, it won't happen. Right.
0: Well, in your book, you share the quote, he who rides a tiger does not decide when to dismount. And Mitch McConnell believes he is artful enough to thread this needle. He has successfully tricked his voters to vote against their interests for decades, but by training them to believe lies, does he lose control of where they dismount that tiger?
2: Great question. Um, I love that quote because it reminded me that the Senate, Republican senators, went along with Trump. Either Either they supported him or they just stood back and let him rampage. They went along with him, and McConnell got a lot out of it, no question, particularly the Supreme Court. But he always, I believe he always thought he could control the situation. He basically thought when the election, when he decided the election was over, it was over. Or when he decided that we're going to now certify the Electoral College vote, none of the Republicans are going to be against it. Well, he was wrong on both counts. He lost control of it. Mm -hmm. So he who rides the tiger cannot choose where he dismounts.
0: But now he's got voters who believe lies beyond the ones he wanted them to believe they're into QAnon they're 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 uh, loyal right. to Trump at uh, you know to a g- tremendous fault and he's he, there are republicans who believe that Mitch McConnell is as evil as Hillary Clinton you know if you will he's just lost them
2: well <laughs> you might think so yeah and I understand I understand that notion mm mm-hmm. But McConnell only has two constituencies, sorry, maybe three. The people of Kentucky who have given him another six year term. So he's got four more years. The, The Republican caucus, as long as the senators stay with him, he's okay. He'll be the leader. And so those are the things he cares about. The other thing he cares about and handles very well is the Republican donor base. He raises money from them. He produces results that they like. Okay. It's not just the fossil fuel industry and the gun manufacturers and the NRA, but those are important parts of his, of his donor base. So he, he's, look, I said to somebody, you got to give him credit. He surfed the madness of the Republican Party for 16 years. All those House leaders end up on the side of the road, discarded, defeated, destroyed. Yeah, that's McConnell's still there. Yeah, so he's pretty skillful.
1: Yeah. I, I think one of the great first examples of this dark power that he wields was back in 2008. And As Weasy talked about voting against the interest of the American people and particularly his constituency, when he would not vote for the finance recovery package, we're in the midst of the worst crisis since the Depression because he didn't want to give the Dems a victory.
2: Right. Yeah, it was early two thousand nine, right after President Obama took office, and I focus on that because at the end in two thousand eight. He actually voted for the TARP legislation to bail out the financial system. And he was proud of that. And I think it was the right thing to do. 90 days later, he flipped completely and wouldn't support economic stimulus by Obama, even though the country was teetering on the verge of a great second Great Depression. He didn't care. The only thing he cared about was that Obama had high approval ratings, and it was necessary to take him down.
0: So he it's shameful
2: his, stuff. Yeah,
0: I mean his playbook is is working, and it's where you say, "Well, I can't vote for this because the Democrats have in, in, ingested so much fluff in here that it's debilitating to you know uh, to us financially." Like he'll he'll constantly blame the Democrats, but how guilty are Democrats of adding? stuff that they really, really want, you know, and I I get it. But like, what's what's your take on that?
2: I think that Democrats probably sometimes overreach. And but I don't believe in the view that both sides are equally or similarly or close to at fault. Mm -hmm. I think the pattern, the most important things to know about politics of the last 30 years. One of them is the move of the Republican Party in stages from conservatism to radicalism to nihilism. We've got one political party, fractious as it is, the Democrats, and we've got another, which is more like an apocalyptic cult. Yeah, that's- And that's, that's a phrase that was used not by me, that was used by a Republican stalwart writing a book 10 years ago describing his party as an apocalyptic cult.
0: But I mean, that's so, not even that's not even a euphemism when you think about the um, conservative uh, uh, Christians who absolutely believe that the apocalypse is, is coming and certain things need to be in place in order for Jesus to come back. They don't say that stuff to us, but it's definitely yeah. informing some of their decision making, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is. But <clears throat> see, my my her point of my book was that McConnell and others, Lindsey Graham particularly, Rob Portman, Mark Alexander, respectable, accomplished public servants. Where were they? Where were they when Trump was running amok? Why didn't if? If you look at the election, to take the big lie for a moment, if on November 7th, when the networks and AP called the election, if McConnell and the others had stood up and said, well, it's a tough election. I'm sorry we lost. We'll be back in four years. But Joe Biden's the president-elect. There wouldn't have been 50 million Americans, 70% of the Trump voters. would have thought the election was stolen right they thought it was stolen because a trump said it was stolen and b no one contradicted him in the republican circle
1: and a step farther than what you're saying is exactly the same explanation for the speech that McConnell gave on January 6th, which was a spectacular speech. And you said in your book that had he given that speech a day or two before, it would have warded off the whole insurrection and changed the course of politics, probably.
2: Well, I don't know if it was a day or two before. He might have had to give it weeks before. I think he lost control between November 7th and December 14th. And that was when the big lie fomented and fomented all over the place, mm-hmm. and then McConnell, of course, gave a superb speech at the time of the second impeachment trial, and then managed somehow to not vote for Trump's conviction. <laughs> yep. That's... Simply put, simply put, he basically he was a Paul, angry at Trump. He believed that Trump had done a terrible thing, mm-hmm. but. He didn't think he could be taken down at that point.
0: I mean, he feels like he's threading a needle, but to us it feels like hypocrisy. So how nervous is McConnell about the hearings?
2: Oh, I don't I don't actually know. I think that McConnell. I believe that McConnell is counting on the dynamic of the off year election. Off-year elections, not great for the president at a time when the country is frustrated, angry, concerned, etc. Biden's approval ratings are down. Inflation is terrible. There are other problems. McConnell's counting on that uh, Concerned, Actually, as, I guess as I think about it, as far as he's concerned, if the hearings take down Trump but don't hurt the Senate, He's fine with that.
0: It's no blood on his hands. They've done his fact, work. That's ideal from his standpoint.
1: Yeah. He would
2: love Trump to be
1: gone. Takes care of the problem. Do you think that the um, uh, the hearings will deflate the Republican surge that's predicted to come in the off-year elections? It would help at all, or it'll just be nonplussed?
2: My guess is not any. <laughs> what... what um, My wife and I have a saying that Irish predictions were really good in the 20th century. (laughs) We're 22 years into this century and my predictions aren't always that great. Um, So I try mostly to encourage people to do the right thing. Um, If I had to guess, I believe the hearings will be part of. Reducing Trump's impact. Mm I think it's hurting Trump. I don't know if it's 100 percent hurting Trump, but I think it's hurting Trump. I think I think it will embolden. Hopefully, Merrick Garland, and I think it will embolden the Georgia prosecutor. I think that Trump. I have twenty dollars riding on it with my (laughs) wife. I don't believe that Trump will run again. Mm -hmm. I don't think he can take another loss and I don't think he'll risk it but i hope it's in a
1: legal quagmire by that time we don't have to worry about it that would be great well we're kind of obsessed with this kind of leading to
0: trump but if re- yeah, yeah. if representatives and senators are found complicit in the insurrection and if for example ron johnson and rand paul and i use them as an example because there are democratic governors in their state, so if we if we pull out all of this garbage and we find not just trump but senators and people giving tours and uh, et cetera, and it takes out, uh, let's say, for the sake of this conversation, Ron Johnson, does Andy Bashir or um, does Tony Iver- Evers get to appoint their replacement?
2: Well, <clears throat> I guess I don't think it'll happen that quickly. And and senators, Ron Johnson, is sort of a special case, but senators, I think, were more careful than some of the House members. Okay. I don't know that the senators have been asking for pardons yet. Some of the House members have been because they probably need them or needed. them. Um, But look, from my standpoint, somebody said to me, well, your book is really good, but it's really depressing. (laughs) Well, (laughs) and I said, yeah, but it is it is a call to action. If you want to change the politics of the country, you have to we have to win some Senate elections. Yeah. Yeah. We have to elect some Democrats and defeat some Republicans. And we shouldn't take for granted that I'm not taking for granted that Marco Rubio or uh, Marco Rubio or Chuck Grassley should not be allowed to skate through. Mm -hmm. We got a great candidate against marco rubio and val demings yeah. and we have a very good very good candidate uh in admiral mike franken in iowa mm-hmm. plus the fact i was just working on a piece about chuck grassley who has decided in his infinite wisdom that he needs an eighth term at the age of 88
1: what wow. about term limits i mean seriously That's... and mcconnell will be included in that
2: well, I I've never favored term limits. I've always believed in competitive elections, but I think Grassley and McConnell have kind of changed my mind.
0: And maybe even Diane Feinstein
2: as well, because. Well, we need, we need I always I mean. I've admired Diane Feinstein since I was a graduate student in Berkeley in 1969 and mm-hmm. 70, when she was on the board of supervisors, she started her career. I think it's a tragedy that she ran again. Yeah, she's wonderful. All of her friends thought it was a tragedy.
0: Um, you know, the Senate just reached a framework deal to address gun violence. And in your book, you talk about how gratifying it is for senators to work together and pass legislation that actually helps people. It's a Moses moment that is incomparable. And your thesis is that it, the fun of finally getting to do this in the Biden administration, COVID relief, the American Rescue Plan, infrastructure, etc., um, will move Republican senators against the intransigence of McConnell. Well, (laughs) or maybe not.
2: (laughs) I'm always I'm always encouraging people to be their best selves. Yeah. And I think to some degree, my statement is true. I think the people who are in the group of whether it's 15 or 20 who are actually accomplishing things, I think they're very gratified to do it and they feel the job is worthwhile for that reason. Mm -hmm. And I think most of these bipartisan accomplishments and I would include the gun legislation the gun agreement if it is finalized these are useful things in my view and much better than nothing but it's still the Senate is still doing what McConnell permits it to do okay McConnell permits it to do certain things uh and he may have decided that he doesn't want to have a record of total obstruction. He'd like to point you yeah, know, I, I did the infrastructure bill. I did the gun bill. I went to Ukraine. I did all those things. So you can make me majority leader. Um, he's very savvy in that. I'll tell you what's
1: duplicitous about him, though. Last week, he said publicly that he agreed with restrictions on automatic weapons, but that never made it into the final bill. So he can be a hero over here while they're messing around with this weaker bill in the House and the Senate. So he- I
2: actually. I actually didn't see that. I'll yes, have to he, look at- he
1: made the comment that he could support uh, uh, assault weapons bans of some sort. And uh, and I just thought, well, that's, you know, it's easy for you to say that. But how about manipulate? You're the puppet master. Manipulate your people into putting that in the agreement.
2: Well, uh, you're telling me something I didn't know. I'm surprised he said that, actually. Well, no, that, that, that
1: makes me question it. But no, that, that, that was something that piqued yeah, my so eye. I may have week. missed it. Yeah, I, I'm.
2: Some days, some days I'm focusing my obsession with McConnell on certain things and not others.
1: (laughs) You know, uh, a a part of your book that I really loved, uh, and I also loved it in Robert Caro's book, Master of the Senate, talking about Johnson and how that is the discussion of how politics changed after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, when the South started to lose the Democrats and the Northeast and Midwest Republicanisms shifted South. That was a catastrophic uh, moment in American politics.
2: Well, it, <clears throat> it was a historic change. As you know, It's the uh, Johnson knew it at the time. He said, we've lost the South for a generation um, once he signed the Civil Rights Act, but it was worth it. He thought it was more important. But certainly what's happened is over that period long period of time is the parties have aligned on regional, racial, and ideological grounds in a way that makes it much more difficult to govern. Uh makes it sometimes impossible to govern. But that's that's kind of why I think that's why I can't actually forgive the Portmans or the Alexanders or these people uh, for not doing better. They have a rare privilege of being United States senators and they should do better. And it's you know, when Rob Portman, who I knew when he was trade representative, he's a very capable and accomplished public servant. When he just announced his retirement and said he was leaving because the partisanship was so serious that you couldn't get things done. I'm thinking, well, no one told you to give your proxy to McConnell on everything. You know, you created it.
0: Yeah, but we don't. Do you have any concept of like what kind of conversations go on or what what McConnell actually says to senators to keep them in line? Because it, it would be it would seem like it should be like herding cats. They each have a state that they have to report back to, but it it just seems like as we make more and more progress as humans on Earth, that becomes increasingly terrifying to certain types of people. You know, there were hundreds and hundreds of years where life on Earth didn't change all that much. And now we're kind of like moving at warp speed. And so some people are, are just stunned and terrified. And this this Republican Party is embracing that fear and sort of weaponizing it. So what do you you think he says to people to justify helping their folks stay scared?
2: Well, that's a great great question. I think it varies depending who the people are. Um, I think that our politics are tribal and there's a great incentive to stick with the tribe and not go against it
1: mm-hmm.
2: why why did eight of them who were retiring all vote for Amy Coney Barrett eight days before the election?
0: Yeah.
2: when they knew it was the wrong thing to do well, they didn 't want to be hassled in restaurants or at the country club or wherever they mm-hmm. were going, Politics being tribal. Mm-hmm. Stick with me and we'll get back in the majority. I made you chairman before they they respect his political judgment. Um, but one. One person who endorsed my book, uh, Never Trump or Bill, Cl- Bill Crystal. OK. Bill said to me once, um, I'm always amazed that people have an infinite capacity for rationalization. <laughs> so insane. if you're Rob Portman of Ohio, well, i can do more for ohio if i get along with trump okay or if i'm not there someone more radical right. would be there it. there's always something mm-hmm. you can come up with some justification but the truth is we have the we have had the most serious threat to our democracy in history and they missed it you know that's that's the betrayal that's mm-hmm. the betrayal
1: you brought up Amy Coney Barrett and, and, and McConnell has said that he thinks getting her passed and approved was the greatest accomplishment of his career. And his yeah. his main mandate has been court stacking with conservative judges. And we see where the Supreme Court is now. And uh, let's talk about his origin story. What gave him that vitriol to want to do that? It goes back to the Robert Bork story. Tell that story.
2: Well, it's could go back to Bork, might have gone back even further because McConnell actually shared an office with a young lawyer who turned out to be Antonin Scalia in the seventies. But the basic story that you, you, you were suggesting, there's a long march of the Republicans spearheaded by the Federalist Society after the defeat of Robert Bork's nomination long march to try to move the court to the right. Now, the reason I think it's a rat, it's not a conservative march, it's a radical march. And the reason I say that is between 1969 and 1993, 24 years, Republican presidents nominated and had confirmed 10 justices in a row. Republicans. And they were pretty conser- you know, pretty conservative court, not a not a radical court. But they were fair minded judges, mostly fair minded conservatives, constitutionalists. And that was too much for the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society kept pushing, got to get further to the right. They made their vetting process better and better. And they hung in there It's been a long, makes Mao Tung's march look like a walk (laughs) in the park. And they accomplished it. They accomplished it because McConnell held up Garland and succeeded, came up a winner with Trump, and that led to three justices. Well, how
1: did Kavanaugh get picked? Because he was not a Federalist Society pick.
2: He, He actually was eventually. He was not, you're right, though, he was not on the first list. As I say in my book, there was Le- Leonard Leo, the vice president of the Federalist Society, thought Kavanaugh might be a swamp creature in Washington. <laughs> he hung out with too many people and he taught part time at Harvard and Yale. They were afraid of him a little bit. But Don McGahn, the White House counsel, prevailed and said, you know, you don't have to worry about Brett Kavanaugh. And we got them on the Federalist list.
0: Well, it feels to me like these guys are kind of vetted out of high school or something. Like they're they're They Very are close. And, and you know, because there's rumors about gambling debts being paid off and stuff like that. Like they I think they owe their souls to heritage and, and Federalists. And they they will stay in line because there's more that's transpired than we're aware of. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, they're vetted pretty, pretty early. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean. John Rod Roberts was sort of nurtured as from a pup, basically. they were, He was the uh, chief justice to be from about the 80s on. And they have this series of things whereby both Kavanaugh and Gorsuch were clerks of... Uh, well, they say that Trump Anthony. loved
1: Kavanaugh because Kavanaugh was on Ken Starr's staff trying to take down the Clintons.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, Kavanaugh... But McConnell, as you know from the book, McConnell was a little worried about Kavanaugh.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: He had a paper record that was huge. He had been on star staff and the Senate Judiciary Democrats thought he had perjured himself the first time around. Yep. When he was got to the bench. look, my view of Kavanaugh was simple, actually. I wrote pieces right when he was nominated. I'm against him because he's an extremist, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. He's on the federalist list because he's an extremist. Have you seen his views on not only abortion, but how about guns, presidential power, and the environment? Just an extremist.
1: Can, Can I talk to you about that? He, and I think the most glaring, disturbing aspect of Barr was that he, as is Kavanaugh, a uh, believer in the unitary executive theory, which is you know this expansive power of the executive branch, wh- where does that come from? What happened to the equal balance of power between the three branches of government? Who? What? What makes them think that that's that was in you know the founders' original plan?
2: I don't know. I don't. I don't think you can find it in the founders' original plan. It's true. Look, the founders felt we needed a strong president. But it was still Article 2. The Congress was Article 1. But the founders thought the president had to be strong because the Articles of Confederation had failed. Over time, as you know, in, in the 20th century, presidential power expanded. The role, particularly World War II, the Cold War, the presidency became more starting with FDR, perhaps, and the New Deal, but the presidency became more and more powerful. But we still had a balance of power, and the Congress reasserted itself after Watergate and after Vietnam. Somewhere along the line, a number of these folks decided, well, we don't really like those constraints. I always think of Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld Mm -hmm as people who thought Congress was too intrusive. <laughs> and, you know, they did. Mm-hmm. They they were in the Ford White House and they thought Congress overreached. So a number of them became advocates of the unitary presidency, which was essentially any, as Trump would say, and as Nixon used to think, anything the president does is legal because the president did it. What? There's no basis for it. But then again, there's no basis for the private right to own a gun under the Second Amendment. And one of the things that's most frightening about these court decisions is the speed of change and the radicalism of some of the decisions. And we may see a case, I hope not, but as the Senate and the House Uh, struggle to finalize this gun legislation, it's quite possible that the Supreme Court is going to rule that New York went too far in regulating handguns. You know, and the notion that not only is there a private right to own a gun, but by the way, despite what Justice Scalia said, states and localities can't really regulate much either.
0: But did California do so, a similar model to what Texas did with abortion? Did California do that with, with guns? Uh,
2: to where if you're you could you could, something could, I don't know the answer.
0: Yeah, to. do you know what I'm talking about, Fritz? No. I thought it, it was like they were going to sort of follow the lead where like you could make a citizen you could sue someone for being in possession of the gun that they're not
1: supposed to be in possession of. I know,
2: I, I yeah, I don't know if they've done it. Yeah, uh, another
1: erosion that. Uh, glaring erosion that McConnell caused was that puts us in a precarious position in both the 22 and 24 elections in that he did not want to fund election security measures. And I think as part of the CARES Act, and and I think that, that th- those statewide election manipulations are one of the greatest threats to both of the next two
2: elections. I agree with you. I agree with you. It's being fought out in various states. There are a lot of lawyers, a lot of lawyers and a lot of activists on both sides. But the long the long arc of our politics is that one party doesn't seem to accept elections they don't win. I mean, politics really isn't war. It's supposed to be the alternative to war got it's a hard game but it's got rules that you sort of work within but if one side accepts that they can lose elections occasionally and the other side doesn't you you start losing the democracy so when people begin to feel
0: overwhelmed as a lot of our friends are feeling yeah and and just fatalistic about the state of our democracy what what do you recommend like what can every citizen do to be a part of the solution
2: I think everybody can do something to organize, contribute, and vote. I think that the only solution now is an overwhelming political response. I think we have to win elections despite the machinations at the election official level. I think we have to win elections emphatically. And I, you know, Somebody said to me, having heard me talk, somebody said, well, I wish I could share your optimism. I said, what optimism? I'm I'm not being optimistic. I think that we, everyone has to do. I think the democracy hangs by a thread. I think everyone has to do their best if they think that it's important. And, you know, I think everyone can do that in different uh, think?"
1: We, we talked about the momentum coming from the hearings. Do you think there'll be enough residual momentum? It's all about timing because we, you know, we have the short American attention span. There'll be a, a, enough momentum from the Roe-Wade controversy and the, the gun malaise that we find ourselves in here to, to make a difference in the 22 elections. Or, or is we going to be off to something else or an in, in inflation will supersede that as the most important thing?
2: I don't know. We'll see. I think I do think that Roe versus Wade and guns, uh, will mobilize a lot of people. I also think that climate change and the fact that McConnell and the Republicans have resisted everything in that area will motivate people. I've argued that, the, you know, progressives and moderate Democrats, we should stop feuding. And focus on the people that are blocking progress, Mm -hmm. whatever your issue is, with the possible exception of inflation, whatever your issue is, McConnell's at the intersection of all. He's at. he's done a lot of damage and we should unify and reduce his power.
1: Productivity in the Senate all boils down to one thing, the filibuster. What's your opinion about that?
2: Well, I'm, for someone who's a Senate veteran, I actually have always been a critic of the rules. I, I believe that the filibuster, I think it's somewhat misunderstood in the sense that the Senate was always supposed to work by majority rule. It had unlimited debates. And then when they got tired, they voted by a majority. Cloture and the idea of cutting off debate only happened when it became clear that debate was getting unlimited. So it was supposed to be a way of ending debates. I don't believe I I'm willing to take whatever risk there is in majority rule. I don't believe that the filibuster should be continued. And I you know we'll see what happens. I mean I know others disagree with that. But the Senate's got a crisis, fundamental crisis of legitimacy, right? Two senators from Wyoming, 600,000 people. Two senators from California, 43 plus whatever, million people. There's a crisis of legitimacy, and you shouldn't make it a situation where there are more and more burdens put on that make it impossible to work. You know, I had this disagreement, I guess, with Joe Manchin at one time. I wrote a piece. He always cited Robert Byrd as somebody who believed in the filibuster. And I kind of knew Robert Byrd and worked for him at one time. Byrd did believe in the filibuster until he became a leader. And then he became passionately concerned about the paralyzed Senate. He would not have stood still for the paralysis of the Senate. The Senate has to function. And the filibuster is stopped.
1: And it seems like with all the packages that we've tried to pass, when it all boiled down to mansion and cinema, I kept saying to myself, how is this all hanging in the balance on two people that go back and forth? That that just seems like it's not what how the government should function either.
2: No, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. But. You know, in my look, I've been frustrated by them, but I do believe that a fifty-fifty Senate is going to be very hard to work with. You get fifty-four senators, maybe Manchin and Sinema don't matter as much.
0: You made a really interesting point in your book where you said, "Well, with the with the Senate being so divisive, clearly these two will side with the Democrats, but they're they're, they're kind of." ish, siding with the Democrats, but also not siding with abolishing the filibuster. Who is holding their feet to a flame? It, it, we always wonder, I always wonder, like, who owns these people? Like, who are they responsible to or, or beyond what what they say to cameras or what they say back in their home states?
2: I think principally they're looking at what they believe in their politics at home and their donors, uh, I guess I would go further to give them some limited credit for actually, they believe, Manchin particularly, but both Cinema and Manchin believe that it would be better if the Senate worked in a bipartisan way. I mean, and by the way, I believe it would be better too if it was possible. But the result of that belief, is that you're handing the keys to the castle to McConnell. Yeah. You, you're, you're, you're saying the only things we will do for the country are those that McConnell agrees to.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, that's great in theory, but in practice, it's not working. Right. And when the founders exactly. wrote whatever, you know, this kind of system of government, they were, this was a test tube. It was all theoretical. And now we've had you know, how many years of, of practice to look at it and say, okay, Let's amend this, let's amend that. And they kind of designed amendments, didn't they, <laughs> the
2: founders? Well, not many, unfortunately. Constitution's really hard to amend. Okay. But I also, I've just, I've criticized the Senate. You got rules that don't seem to be working. You haven't looked at the rules since 1979. Yeah. Trent Lott in 2005, and he was no radical. Trent Lott said, when did these hold? That started out as temporary courtesies. When did they become permanent impediments wow. on legislation or, or nominations? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Yeah. You'd think after 25 or 30 or 40 years, you might get into it a little bit.
0: Like something that you're going to use as a courtesy to get us through this moment becomes becomes a weapon in a, in a further moment. Like they keep mm-hmm. blaming Harry Reid for blowing up the hill, filibuster. Like they wouldn't have done it you know, in his shoes to get what they wanted in that moment. You know, he didn't really have an option. Uh,
2: but do you have thoughts yeah, on that? He may have made a mistake. Yeah. But the truth is McConnell would have done what he would have done. Right. When he wanted.
0: Yeah. To. Yeah.
2: And I've always felt, you know, an interesting fact that nobody knows. We all know Trump ran, McConnell ran through a lot of federal judges, yep. district court and court of appeals judges. Just ran the uh, conveyor belt it's actually the case that jimmy carter appointed more judges in four years than trump did Mm
1: -hmm.
2: nobody really knows that but mcconnell got younger judges and he won the big prize with the supreme court
1: I want to go back to West Virginia because I went to college. there. This is a fascinating state. And Manchin's power is fascinating to me because Trump won that state by 40, 50 points or something, right? Yet he got elected. So he's doing this high wire act, which is really kind of unbelievable. How did he get elected? Is he like a residual from the Robert Byrd era? How did he even yeah. come to power?
2: Well, I, I've got some history, actually, in West Virginia because I was Jay Rockefeller's first chief of staff when he came to the Senate in the mid 80s. So I used to know the state pretty well. If I was still there, it would still be blue. No, Um, no, Manchin was he came up in Democratic politics uh, and he was a Democratic governor and a popular one. And he got to the Senate. So he's still Democratic, the Democrat, but he's a very conservative Democrat. The art, any article that refers to him as a moderate is wrong. I mean, he's just not a moderate. He voted he, for Kavanaugh. He's against he's against abortion rights. He favors no gun control up to this point. And and he knows his politics. Um, but I guess my. If Manchin had said that Biden's build back better program now that I've reduced it, now that I've cut it back to a reasonable size, I think it works for West Virginia and the nation. I don't think anyone would have questioned it in West Virginia. Yeah. Wow. But but he's very, very conservative. And to be honest, as I try to be, uh, inflation has, you know, he was early on the concern of inflation and the rise in inflation has given him some additional ammunition
0: yeah mm-hmm. now before we go do you have any great stories from the senate from when you were a kid wide-eyed kid walking in there do you have any stories for us
2: huh. i have a lot of great stories yeah, I bet. um i was on the senate floor once uh working on the senate code of ethics with gaylord nelson We had a controversial provision. We were limiting outside earned income that senators could make from speeches. It was not a partisan issue. A lot of people hated us, including Ed Muskie, because he used to make speeches at universities Mm -hmm. and he couldn't. And he started going, I don't know why you're taking away my right to earn a living. (laughs) I made these speeches. And today, I haven't figured out why you're doing it. But today in the Washington Post, I read an aide to Senator Nelson said, well, we can't control unearned income, investment income, but we can limit this kind of income. Nelson turned to me and said, did you say that? (laughs) I said, yeah, I did. Nelson stood up and said, well, I'll tell the senator from Maine. I don't know if one of my staff people said that. <laughs> but if he did, that was a very good insight. Oh, there we go. Whereupon Nelson walks off the floor. He calls for a quorum call, walks off the floor. Muskie storms down the aisle to confront me. Oh. And Muskie's like six foot four. I jump up to stand up and I knock over a pitcher of water all oh. over. Oh, nice! And I thought he was going to melt like the wicked witch <laughs> of the west. Yeah, no, there were many stories, but anyway.
1: Oh, that's awesome! I've got
2: five others, but you don't have time for that. Oh,
1: we'll have you back. I, I want to ask you just to give your opinion about how you think the the congressional hearings are being orchestrated. Are they being effective? Are they doing it properly? And just what's your general opinion?
2: Well, I think. Well. My general opinion is that the hearings are being done effectively. I worry that not enough people are watching them, but I think they're being done effectively. I've been very impressed by the January 6th committee generally. Mm-hmm. I think they're putting this thing together in an overwhelming way. Uh, I thought that even before the hearing. I think they they know what their schedule is. They know they have to when they have to finish their work. I think they're going to hand Merrick Garland uh an overwhelming case against high-level officials right up to and including Trump. So, no, I think they're doing well. Um we'll see what happens.
0: Mm-hmm. It's. It feels like it's an education, like, in, like if you watch the history of Watergate about how nobody, nobody cared about Watergate until the hearings, and then, if if we're educated, if everyone's educated, that way, when Merrick Garland starts to actually indict people, there won't be warfare in the streets. Well, there, there'll be like like a general understanding that these were bad guys and something needs to happen. Is that kind of do you, I know we're not supposed to the House and the Senate are not supposed to be working together with the Department of Justice. But do you think that's kind of like the overall strategy as to how to handle this? No,
2: I, I think there is an effort to okay. uncover the whole story and put the whole story together for the public and to the degree that helps prod the Justice Department. I think that's certainly in their minds as well. Um, But look, we started on Watergate. Maybe Mm -hmm. we should finish on uh, contrasting this to Watergate. Okay. One of the differences was that, well, there are two differences to come to mind. The first difference was there were Republicans who were outraged at Nixon. Mm -hmm. Nixon was ultimately pushed over the edge to resign because Republicans turned against him. And we had enough Republicans of character at that time mm-hmm. we don't have enough of them at this time God knows Liz Cheney has done a remarkable job yes it uh, really deserves great credit for really, our coverage. Really mm-hmm. yeah um, but they number one number two the difference actually is that Nixon was a real president I mean, John Dean said Watergate was a cancer on the presidency. Trump's whole presidency was a cancer. I mean, you know, He he, he wasn't I mean, I can think of a couple of things that he might get credit for. But, you know, this was an assault on the democracy from the beginning. When Trump was first elected. I mean, I've made my living as an international trade lawyer and consultant. When Trump was elected, I was asked, you know, you must think his trade policy is terrible. I said, I think it's one of the least terrible things about Mm him. I mean, at least I sort of recognized the trade policy, but it was the assault on the democracy that was visible from the beginning. I got out of the trade business and started worrying about that more. Right. So." It was it, anyway. it,
0: it was a mob family inside the White House. So there was nothing presidential going on ever for those four years. But well, we need your media pick, Irish Shapiro. And you were going to talk about Peaky Blinders. <laughs>
2: um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with Peaky Blinders. Oh, yes, they are. Of course. Oh, good. I, think I that's I one stumbled of the most strong shows. Peaky Blinders, a great show, uh, ran for like, I guess, five seasons. I only saw it recently, but it ran years ago. It's about gangs in in London and Belfast, and. uh, Otherwise, in. um, Yes, that's Peaky Blinders Mm -hmm. in in UK. Uh, It's a marvelous show and it's coming back for its last season, uh, starting, I think, right about now. So everyone should watch Peaky Blinders.
0: Oh, that's great. What's the era?
2: Uh, post World War One. Post yeah, Very it looks interesting 20s, Yeah, twenty. Yeah, yeah. It goes from nineteen nineteen right up to the Great Depression actually.
0: Okay, fascinating.
1: That's a great pick.
2: Yeah, it's a great, great piece of work.
1: I gotta tell you, Ira, I, I really enjoyed your book and I think it just fits so well into the canon of books that describe what you yourself have described as maybe the most threatening era against democracy in the history of the United States. And I really I enjoyed reading your book very much and I wish you best. Do you have a project in the works now? Another one?
2: No, not yet. Uh, for the next five months, it's just anything I can do to sort of be involved or help in the Senate elections. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. you know, every author wants the book to do well, but, I want the book as a platform to talk about the issues and the importance of the Senate elections.
0: Well, something that we've done here, Ira, is we've created a website called Gift of Democracy. So it's really kind of like a directory that sends you to the merchandise pages of candidates and causes who are defending our democracy. So it's instead of getting your data tie on Amazon, if you go here and you click uh, anywhere, you'll be taken directly to the merchandise page of all these candidates uh, who oh, are running great. to protect our democracy. Click on any of those, Thomas, and you'll get an example. <laughs>
2: that's great.
0: And there's some fun merch that you can that you can purchase and uh, for your dad, especially with Father's Day coming up. And I think there's a lot of dads that would appreciate that, uh, you know, ahead of whatever uh, apron you were gonna pick out for barbecuing, <laughs> but they do have oh, aprons. That's terrific.
2: Yeah. So so, can I assume you're in California somewhere? Yes, yes. we are. Yeah, yeah. We are. Because I remember that.
0: We're in Los um, Angeles.
2: I will say, since I have a new website, I'll just mention it. Yes, it's please www. do. Www. Oh, okay.
0: We'll definitely post a link to that. And Washington. it's the
2: great cover on the book, which shows McConnell and Trump melding. Oh, it's
1: cool. It's a fantastic cool, cool. cover. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, very that's a cool. That's great
2: what, 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 Give a shout out to that artist. That? Yeah. Who did that
1: art uh, uh,
2: artwork? It was designed by a woman named Sally Reinhardt, but there's a cartoonist, political cartoonist named David Smith. Okay, wonderful. And I think they did a great job.
0: They really did. Okay, here come our closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod and on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail dot com. If you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in the Apple Podcasts store and talk about us on social media. Then post another cute pic of your doggy. We know he's just the cutest. You can sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at mediapathpodcast dot com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Irish Shapiro. Hey, did you have any shows that you wanted to shout out,
1: Fritz? Right. Yes, I have. Uh, I'm I'm opening for a great R and B singer, uh, Mark Arthur Miller, on uh, Sunday, August seventh, at the world famous Catalina Jazz Club, on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. So I'll be his opening act, and not only is this guy a great song stylist doing the great R and B of the '60s, this is like a boomer Nirvana, but his father has a great story that he tells on stage about being the first white writer of songs at Motown. It's a wonderful show. I hope you'll come and see us.
0: Yes, absolutely. Our team includes Tina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Polanker here with Fritz Coleman and Irish Shapiro, and we will see you along the media path.
2: conversation is wonderful.